Wisdom is something we don't talk about a lot. We talk about knowledge, but we're in a world where I think with AI becoming so much more prevalent in our life, meaning that knowledge has become commoditized, that what's going to balance out all this AI stuff is human wisdom. Welcome, everybody. My name is Drew Horning, and this podcast is called Love's Everyday Radius. It's brought to you by the Hoffman Institute, and it's stories and anecdotes and people we interview about their life post process and how it lives in the world radiating love. Please be aware that this episode references suicide. Please use your discretion. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Chip Conley is with us today. Chip, welcome. Thank you, Drew. You have a voice for radio. I wasn't going to say a face for radio, but you have a voice for radio, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm really excited for this conversation. Will you share a little bit about who you are and how you got to be Chip Conley? Yeah. Well, I uh, am Stephen Townsend Conley, Jr., I chip off the old block, and um, I was the oldest of three kids. Um, I won't go deep into my childhood history, although I know that is a Hoffman thing for sure. But I will say that I came up to Northern California for college and graduate school. I started a boutique hotel company called Joie de Vivre when I was 26 years old and ran that for 24 years. I had a sort of a dark night of the ego or dark night of the soul between 45 and 50. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. I called it a midlife crisis because that's what you do at that age if something isn't working. And I got to the other side of it, thankfully, and uh, lost a few friends to suicide during that time, though, too. That was during the Great Recession. After having had a really bad last, last half of my 40s, I had the best decade of my life in my 50s. I became the in-house mentor to the three founders of Airbnb, young founders, and they started calling me the modern elder. Didn't like that at first, but they said, Chip, you're as curious as you are wise, so you're a modern elder. And I was like, okay. And long story short is I spent seven and a half years, four years full-time and three and a half years very actively part-time helping them take the company to, to where it is today. During that time, I started thinking about like, wow, we don't really, as a society, do a very good job of helping people in midlife reimagine and repurpose themselves. And that's when the Modern Elder Academy, or MEA, came up as an idea. And we opened about, you know, gosh, almost six years ago uh, in Baja on a beachfront with a campus. Now have a campus that will be opening in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and we have online programs. And um, I write books about this. I have a new book coming out in January called Learning to Love Midlife. 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. Chip, is there any connection between those suicides during that economic crisis and Modern Elder Academy in terms of if they had had the skills to repurpose? Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, Drew. I mean, one of the five friends of mine, they're all men between age 42 and 52. One of them had, has exactly the same name I have. His name was Chip. Chip Hankins, he was my insurance broker and one of my best friends. And it shocked all of us. Yeah, one of the things I took from that period in my life where I was going through struggling, I was struggling, I had some suicide ideation myself. And when I lost all those friends was, my God, what are we doing as a society to help people with midlife? Because there's a lot of transitions that we go through in midlife. And some of us think that somehow we're getting the game of life wrong because we're not doing them right. And, and yet many of them are normal, uh, whether it's 
changing a career or empty nest or sandwich generation or divorce or the stirring of something inside of you, that little spiritual stirring inside of you, that your soul that is screaming at you saying, you know, it's time for the soul's term. Let's uh, retire the ego for a little while. So all of this led me to creating MEA because I felt such a sense of commitment to these five men who took their own lives. I, we're not a place where people come necessarily when they're doing suicide ideation. We, we definitely interview people before they come and, and they apply. But we have a lot of people who come who are really confused by where they are in midlife. So what we try to do is help create a place where people can have a, a safe place to have deep and life-changing conversations to help them to look at the second half of their adult life. That is beautiful. That safe place to have deep and meaningful conversations and to have wisdom holders who provide lots of guidance, I imagine, as well. Exactly. So all of our facilitators, maybe similarly to uh, Hoffman, come from our community. They're people who have actually gone through our programs and they're you know, well-trained to, to address this question of navigating transitions, cultivating wisdom, looking at your mindsets and shifting those from a fixed to a growth mindset. And then actually, how do we uh, help develop our purpose in life? We've had a lot of um, Hoffman grads come to MEA. And as, as you know, uh, we've had Blake McCoskey and Lynn Twist, both of whom are Hoffman grads who have either taught or have been students of MEA. And I think a lot of people say, well, gosh, Hoffman addresses how do you make sense of all of your life up to this point in order to have a create change in your future. And MEA sort of links well with it because um, while we do not do the deep dive psychologically on going through family origin work that you do so well, we really look at the psychological mindsets that influence how we show up in life today. And some of those come from childhood for sure. And then we look at what do we do with that moving forward. I love that the two programs are so simpatico. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because part of why we're doing this now is that you will be hosting probably the fourth of these shared conversations between Hoffman and MEA. Will you talk a little bit about those? Sure. You know, because we had so many Hoffman grads come to MEA and say, what are you doing to collaborate with Hoffman? I reached out to Liza and we had that, Liza and I had a conversation before COVID even, and we started talking about what we were learning. And then during COVID, as retreat centers focusing on personal growth and knowing that no one's going to be coming to our retreat centers at that time, we sort of shared best practices of how we were getting through COVID. But it was more recently in the last year where people like Lynn, people like Blake said, we've got to figure out a collaboration here. And so the idea was, let's start by having our alumni come together and have conversations and, and bring leaders who are aligned with both the Hoffman and the MEA ethos and point of view so that we can have interesting conversations and then do breakout groups that allow for people to go deeper on the topic of the day. And I'm really excited that Liza and Raz and I will be We'll be talking amongst ourselves. So the first three, we had sort of thought leaders out there in the world. And this one's going to be just the three of us talking about what we've learned, what they've learned in being leaders in Hoffman as long as they have, and what I've learned in my first six years here at MEA. I was uh, on the board of the Esalen Institute for 10 years and a teacher there. So 
the idea of retreat centers is not a new thing for me, even though I've been mostly a businessman and a business person and an entrepreneur. But I, I'm looking forward to learning from, from Liza and Raz on this conversation. You know, Chip, as the representative from Hoffman facilitated that with your people, and, and I love these conversations. And what we get so much, what's happened, is that people are writing in the chat box, oh my God, MEA and Hoffman, a perfect pairing. We get a lot of offers to collaborate. And you're probably the one of the very few that we've said yes to, and you've said yes to us. It is a good pairing, isn't it? Let me just emphasize how honored I am personally, and we are as an organization, because Hoffman is, you know, you have waiting lists for, for months for people to get into your programs, almost 60 years of history, and we're the, the new kid on the block. So we're really proud and honored that we have built this relationship and, and we've built the credibility that we have so many Hoffman graduates come to MEA and loved it enough to say, gosh, we, we should collaborate more. And I, there's nothing wrong with the idea of letting people know, both in our community about Hoffman, because we've had a lot of MEA grads now go to Hoffman because we've been talking about Hoffman and vice versa, because we're all in this together. I mean, the, the truth is that the more we can support emotional and mental health in a way that allows people to find their narrative and to find their voice. And I think both Hoffman and MEA do that very well in a skilled way that's not too woo-woo. I mean, sometimes it's like, oh, it's all too woo-woo, this stuff. Well, yeah, sometimes at the Esalen Institute, yes, sometimes stuff is too woo-woo. And then there's some really great social scientists who go to, to Esalen do great stuff as well. But I know that one of the things that's different between us and Hoffman versus, say, Esalen, which I love, I love Esalen, is we, have, we both have a curriculum and a program. So we're not so reliant on just the faculty members to come in and do their thing, which is what happens at Omega or Esalen or Blue Spirit or a lot of other places. We have a program. There's a curriculum. We are not just the facility. We're the facilitator. And I think that's really important because that means there's a, a high level of quality that is going to be consistent. That is like, this isn't Omega, this isn't Kripalu, where although you're going to the same site, it really depends on which teacher, which facilitator is there. There is a format, there's a structure, and the teachers come in just to augment and support within that structure. That's exactly right. And we are moving more and more in the direction of Hoffman in the sense that we know over time that there are three key pillars of our curriculum Navigating transitions, cultivating purpose, and owning wisdom. Navigating transitions, cultivating purpose, and owning wisdom. Fantastic. And the wisdom, wisdom is something we don't talk about a lot. We talk about knowledge, but we're in, a, we're in a world where I think with AI becoming so much more prevalent in our life, meaning that knowledge has become commoditized, that what's going to balance out all this AI stuff is human wisdom. So how do we help people? to cultivate and harvest their wisdom and accelerate it. And that is why people, the New York Times called us the world's first midlife wisdom school. And what are you hearing from grads as you've gone through these early years? What are you noticing? Well, I think what, especially post-COVID, is just the deep desire to connect and connect in person to have a sense of belonging and a sense of sharing stories. One of the things we say at MEA is that wisdom is not taught, it's shared. And I think that's really true. I think that we don't have a guru at the top, in the front of the room. We, we have a curriculum for sure, but we don't have a guru in the front of the room who's 
saying, I'm going to teach you how to be wise. We actually use appreciative inquiry, a method of asking questions to help unlock and unleash the wisdom that's inside people. You know, it's a little bit of a magical approach that we take that allows people to get clearer on what gift they have inside of them. There's a beautiful quote, which is, the purpose of life is to find your gift. The work of life is to develop it. And the meaning of life is to give it away. And that really describes our program. So our, our real intent is to help people to see their and find their gift so that they can share it. We're a midlife wisdom school. And yes, Elder is in our name, Modern Elder Academy, also known as MEA. We've had people as young as 28 and as old as 88 come to the program. And the average age of the people is 54. And we've had people come from 42 countries to our Baja campus. It is fantastic. I imagine it's been a lot of work and inspiring at the same time. This is my gift. Back to that quote. The meaning of my life today is to give this gift. And because I lost my friends 15 years ago, and because I, I didn't say it, but I had a flatline experience at that time, allergic reaction to an antibiotic, I really take every day as a, as a gift to me and as a bonus. And so the idea of giving back and being in service and, and watching the transformation of people. We also have 26 regional chapters around the world. And to see MEA grads you know, in Sydney, Australia, or in Tel Aviv, Israel, or in Mexico City, have a sense of connection with other grads is really beautiful because it allows them to feel like they can continue this process of self-discovery with others who understand the language. You know, Chip, when I have been a part of these conversations of witnessing you interview these guests and facilitate conversation, you just have a natural gift for being curious and engaging. Where did you get that? You know, as a businessman, not every businessman has that kind of gift, but I just love listening to you as you interview guests. Thank you, Drew. I'm Caucasian, and I grew up in a family that was very conservative, very, very conservative. And interestingly enough, my parents wanted me to go to junior high school and high school in the inner city because our, our home was in a district that, where I would go to a, a predominantly non-white school, a place called Long Beach Poly High School, which is the number one feeder school for the NFL and the NBA. And it's a really interesting place, and I loved it. But I also learned what it was like to be the other to be the curious white boy, as they called me in my school that was predominantly non-white. And I loved it, but it gave me my first experience of what does it mean to be the other and to, and to be culturally curious. And then um, I went to Stanford, went to Stanford Business School and played water polo on the Stanford team, was in a fraternity, but I was gay and I was not out yet. And it wasn't until I was 22 that I came out. And this was in 1983. It was a terrible time to come out. It was AIDS and it was like everything going on. And, and at Stanford Business School coming out was a big deal, I mean, like really big deal back then. And so I knew what it was like to be the other again, because I was not, you know, everybody thought I was straight, but I had had girlfriends, but I, I knew that I had to be true to myself. And that's when I started spending a lot of time at Esalen, going to workshops and doing my own exploration. And then when I joined Airbnb, once again, I was the other because I was 52 when I joined and the average age in the company was 26. So I was the old guy and I was the boomer amongst the millennials. So if you looked at me at face value, you'd say, this is a straight white guy who's done well for himself in his life. You know, he's privileged. And that is all true, except for I'm not straight. And I've also not 
always been in the dominant demographic. So that has meant that I've had to be curious and I've had to really try to understand other people really well. And so, yeah, I've been a CEO and a business leader and an entrepreneur and all this stuff. So like, it's very surprising to people to see like, oh, you have a gift to be a facilitator, Chip. And I love it. It's the thing I'm supposed to be doing at almost 63 years old. For those of you who haven't read Arthur Brooks' book, From Strength to Strength, number one New York Times bestseller, and he's on our online faculty, he basically talks about the fact that as you get older, your ability to think with crystallized intelligence gets better, which crystallized intelligence is the ability to connect the dots and to think systemically and holistically, as opposed to being fast and focused, which is what we are when we're younger. So long story short is um, I'm just using the gift that I have to help other people uh, find their gift. Mm. I think you just described why privilege is so problematic in our society. You know, I think we have a tendency to judge everybody by their cover of their book. Sometimes it doesn't, it's not accurate. When people sort of come at me sometimes and say, like with MEA, for example, they'll say like, well, that's just for privileged people. I was like, well, have you done a little bit of research? Over half the people who've come to Baja campus have been on some form of scholarship or financial aid we've given them. It's like, oh, I didn't know that. But because they look at me and they'll say, oh, you know, white guy looks straight. They'll say, okay, it's just for people who look like him. One of the things I think is beautiful about Hoffman and about uh, MEA is no one knows each other's last name. Nobody knows each other's history. Nobody has seen each other's LinkedIn profile. So you get to know each other from the inside out. And that is really unusual in our society. We need more of that. What's fascinating is late in a workshop, we don't usually get into politics in workshops, but sometimes later in the week, our workshops are about a week long. And later in the week, people might start talking about politics. And like all of a sudden you realize that the person you've become closest with in the workshop is someone who's at the exact opposite political end of the spectrum from you. And you realize, I want to listen to this person now. But if you just met them on the street based upon you know, their politics, you'd say, like, I'm not even going to talk to that person. So we, we desperately need more Hoffmans and MEAs in the world to help with the polarity that we have in society. That's fantastic. Chip, I want to ask also about what something you haven't mentioned is your work in supporting and leading Burning Man. And as a guy who has never been to Burning Man and yet is Burning Man curious, tell us a little bit about your role there and why people should go to Burning Man. So I was asked many, many years ago by the six founders of Burning Man to be uh, the first member of their nonprofit board. And so Burning Man is owned by a nonprofit. And so I joined the board, became the first member, became a big donor, partly because what I loved about Burning Man is, as Brian Chesky, the founder of Airbnb, once said when I took him there for the first time, Burning Man is what the world would be like if artists ruled the world. <laughs> and I think there's something true to that. Yes, Burning Man gets a lot of a lot of myths around Burning Man. Some of them are true. So I guess, I don't know if they're myths or not, but people run around naked sometimes. And yes, there's a lot of drug taking and things like that going on. But at the heart of what Burning Man is, it's a utopian community of what would it be like to have a, a gift society uh, uh, where everything is gifted. You, the only thing you can buy at Burning Man is coffee or ice. And so everything else, you, you can walk you know, from camp to camp and meet people and people will serve you drinks, feed you a meal, you'll listen to some music. It's, a, it's quite a beautiful way of creating a world 
where we're not distracted by our devices. So I loved it and I wanted to, to give back. And that's part of the reason why I joined the board and got so actively involved in the organization. So I've been on the board of Esalen and Burning Man at the same time and actually brought those two organizations together such that Burning Man used to do their leadership retreats at Esalen, uh, which, was, which was a lot of fun. You are embodying your essence, your spiritual self, as we say at Hoffman, and letting everything else, all the ripples of what that means to influence the world around you. Yeah, I think I moved from, you know, back in the business world, we used to talk about ROI, return on investment. I now consider ROI ripples of impact. I do think that's the ROI that we need to be very considerate of uh, as we get older. And frankly, we should be considerate of that our whole life because we can have an impact at any age. And when I say impact, I'm not necessarily saying you have to go out and write a book or raise money or do anything like that. The ripple of impact is just how you treat other people and frankly, how you treat yourself. So that's my new form of ROI. Chip, speaking of how you treat yourself, there was a moment in a conversation you were facilitating between Hoffman and MEA where you acknowledged prostate cancer. And then you said the following question. I'm really wrestling with this idea of, have I abandoned my body or is my body abandoning me? Yeah, I, I found out uh, about five years ago that I had intermediate stage prostate cancer. Fast forward, I no longer have a prostate and that's relatively new news. That's in the last two months. And I had some surgery along the way to try to make it better, but ultimately I'd have it taken out and it spread to my, my lymph nodes in my pelvis. But I'm actually doing okay. And I was on hormone depletion therapy for five months, which was no fun. I learned what menopause is like. That's what happens when a man is on hormone depletion therapy is like you actually go through menopause, which was fascinating. But the question I now ask is, cancer, what do you have to teach me? Because I I don't think I'm at war with cancer, nor am I a victim of cancer. Uh, What I am is a student of cancer. And as a student, the four things that that cancer has has taught me is number one, I want to slow down my life and spread out. I tend to get very focused on the things I'm focused on. And lately it's been MEA. But so there's a lot of things I love doing in life and I want to spend more time on those things. Number two is I want to slow down MEA's growth, which is I can do as the CEO. Number three is I want to learn how to move out of the archetype of being the hero. It's a hard one for me. This is one that I've had my whole life been sort of drilled into me by my, my Marine captain father and how do I move away from the hero identity? Because it has an effect on me. No, I don't want that anymore. And then fourthly, what is the fourth one? Oh, I want to love my body. I want to actually be, I want to think of my body as my best friend. And you would treat your best friend really well. And yet we tend to think of our bodies almost like a rental car, you know, that we were issued when we were born. And the older you are, the more dense it has in it. And you sort of, at some point, as is true with a rental car, you, you drive it hard knowing that you're going to be able to return it at the end of the rental time. So I'm more like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to spend some time polishing this car a little bit. And most importantly, inhabiting the interior of the car, because that's really the most important thing as we get older is what's the interior of the car? What's the interior of our, what's the interior decorating we need to do inside our, ourselves when it comes to our emotions? Wow. And how's that going? I mean, I imagine you're such a spirited positive, engaged human. And I imagine at times it's challenging. It, it is. I think the hardest part, Drew, is 
I had choreographed or curated my life in such a way that I had so much on my plate that when five months ago, actually now it's seven months ago, we found out that it had spread from my prostate to my lymphs. I had to change everything and I had to do it overnight. And I, you know, I hadn't set MEA or other parts of my life up in such a way that it, I was ready to step away or step back a little bit for a short period of time. And it was a bit of a shock to the system. And it, it woke me up. It was the hotelier's wake-up call of seeing like, okay, you know what? I've got to figure out an alternative way of how to curate my life. I see it as a gift. Yes, are there fears about, okay, I might die from this? Yeah, I will be on active surveillance the rest of my life having you know tests quarterly. But you know, I've had enough people come through MEA with terminal cancer uh, and other things and just the most lovely people in the world. And I realized that life does have a death sentence attached to it. But what's most important is what do you do while you're here? And what kind of spiritual life do you build around, you know, is there something beyond this? So for me, the ultimate religion or spirituality is one that actually helps you to show up with the most humanity in this lifetime. Um, And that's what I try to do. You know, I heard Oprah interviewed David Brooks once and she's like, David Brooks, you have a way with words. And that is how I'm feeling right now. Your capacity to string words together is really beautiful. Thank you, Drew. What does that look like on a regular basis? Are you, do you have practices that help you navigate the daily journey, not on a theoretical level, but are you sipping tea with your dog or something? How does it work in real time? Well, I do, I do something called spying on the divine. And that is, those are awe walks. So there's a guy named Dacker Keltner who's from UC Berkeley and he started the Greater Good Science Center. And he's on our faculty. Uh, once a year, he comes and teaches at MEA. He taught me a lot about awe walk. An awe walk is the idea of going into nature, maybe asking the question, nature, what do you have to teach me? And then just observing, becoming a first-class noticer of what you see. And that's what I've been doing. Um, I've been doing that uh, with my dog for three hours at a time. I put it in my calendar just to make sure I, I don't overschedule myself with other things. So that's one thing I do. I love meditating. I've loved meditating for 40 years uh, since I first learned to do that at Esalen. And every morning I do a little meditation. I, I say three prayers and six mantras as well. Um, I do that in the shower, the six, three, three prayers and six mantras. I, you know, as this guy named BJ Fogg, who's a, famous for his habit, uh, how, you, how do you make habits work? Um, he's on our faculty too. You stack a habit on something else. So I do my, my mantras and my prayers while I'm taking a shower uh, because that way I'll do them. And yeah, I like to write a lot. And so I have a daily blog called Wisdom Well. I tend to get up early in the morning and write as well. So these things, writing and being in nature and prayers and mantras and meditation, those are sort of the, the small pieces that make me be able to handle a life that's pretty full on. It's like a fire hose sometimes. I imagine you must love bringing together all these people, these wisdom holders with different perspectives onto your faculty at MEA. Oh my gosh. Whether it's Esther Perel, famous psychotherapist, or Matthew Ricard, the famous Buddhist monk, or Dan Buettner, who founded the idea of Blue Zones, just having these people who have a lot of wisdom come to the campus and integrate their wisdom teaching with our curriculum 
it has been beautiful. And it's been one of the collateral benefits of founding this program is, is to have those kinds of people. Uh, Michael Franti, the musician, is coming next year to our Santa Fe campus. Pico Iyer, who's one of my favorite writers in the world, is doing so as well. So it's, 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 it is quite beautiful. I feel really lucky. And two campuses, the one in Santa Fe is being built, but the one in Baja is already running. Baja's open. Santa Fe opens in March, and it's a 2,600-acre regenerative horse ranch just outside of Santa Fe. Oh, the most beautiful campus I could ever imagine. What's it like to tell your story and talk about these things you've done? What do you notice as we have this conversation? You know, I think there's three. One, there's a guy named Aaron Taylor who is on our faculty. He was a, a Green Bay Packer, actually had two Super Bowl rings. His career got cut short early because of injury, and then he ended up uh, having addiction issues. Fascinating guy. One of the things he taught us at MEA uh, as a faculty member is that when we're talking to other people, we're talking from one of three vaults. The first vault is the facts of our lives. And we first get to know someone, that's where you go to. The second vault is the stories of our lives. We can get caught up in storytelling really easily. And much of what I've talked about today has been story. And as the Hawaiians say, uh, talking story is not a bad thing, except for when you get so caught up in your story that you actually don't have a way out of it. You're sort of stuck in it. And so the third vault is where we tend to talk from MEA in our workshops and where I've tried to go a little bit today, which is talking from essence. And it's not your story. It's actually what's underneath the story. It's the spontaneity of whatever comes up in that moment and the revelation of things that you wouldn't necessarily talk about in normal, formal company. What I try to make sure I do in a conversation like this is I don't want to spend too much time on story, on facts or story. I'd like to spend more time on essence because, you know, when you actually go to that place, it's like roto-rooter for your soul. It's like you've just sort of opened up a clogged artery that for so many of us, the ability to access our soul is stunted by our facts and our stories and good behavior. So being able to get there by going to the third vault is what opens up this essence portal that all of a sudden starts sprouting. You start to, it's like, it's, it's like you've, you've hit a little gusher of water, a natural spring deep inside yourself that starts to actually come up through the earth. And that's what it feels like when you're speaking from the third vault. Wow. I got goosebumps as you're describing. I did too. I did too. I'm a total neophyte at this stuff. I'm learning. I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing in my life right now. And at times I feel a bit like an imposter. You know, you have an imposter syndrome where you sort of feel like, well, I don't have the credentials or I don't have this or I don't have that. And then I just show up and I just like, you know what, when I'm in the imposter syndrome, and a lot of us have that in different parts of our lives, then I just sort of go back to, okay, I'm just going to speak from my truth. And when I do that, man, does it make me feel like, okay, I'm not an imposter. Yeah. And part of what your truth involves, what I hear is some humility, some acknowledgement of the unknown. Uh, You mentioned Carol Dweck's work earlier about a growth mindset. That seems to have had a big impact on you. Yes. Yeah. You know, uh, there's so many people who come to MEA and they're really sort of stuck. They're stuck because 
We have a mindset, I'm too old to fill in the blank, or I will never meet my soulmate, or I will never be able to get over a childhood trauma. Or the, So those are fixed mindsets where you, you're sort of stuck and you're often f- feeling like you have a limited amount of capacity and your job is to sort of like do the best with it. A growth mindset really believes that we're here to learn and improve and not judge. That's a really important third component. A lot of times when we think of a growth mindset, we think of it as we're here to learn and improve. But I think another key piece of that is to not judge ourselves because with a fixed mindset, we're often trying to compare ourselves with others and we define success as winning. And with a growth mindset, it's not about winning, it's about learning. And so that is my principle that I try to live by. Now, at the same time, I'll be honest, Drew, that you know, there are times when I'm, I just am freaked out. I'm a, I don't know if you know the Enneagram, but a big believer in the Enneagram, and I've studied that for 40 years. Um, I started studying it with Helen Thomas uh, in Berkeley a long, long time ago. And I'm a three with a four wing. And so a, as a three, man, I, you can get very much in the performance kind of mindset. And I can be very focused on, okay, you know, what have we accomplished lately? And that is sort of at odds with the growth mindset. If you can make them work together, it's powerful, powerful, powerful. But if I have the mindset that I'm only as good as my most recent success, which is what a three can sometimes think, and that sort of a fixed mindset mentality, that is actually really debilitating because if you're only as good as your last success, you're just constantly judging yourself and stressing yourself. So we'll put a bunch of what you talked about, all of it, in show notes with links, including all the people you mentioned who are faculty members will have a link to their personal stuff and also the Enneagram in case people are interested. But before we go, I just want to ask about, you know, the Surgeon General came out a few months ago talking about the epidemic of loneliness. And every time I hear about that, a part of me just... I just get sad for our increasing division, increasing isolation. And I imagine that you see MEA as in part an antidote to that. Yeah. I think the number one surprise we've had, and this is even pre-COVID, was how much people are desiring connection. We live in an era in which somehow partly because of what Robert Putnam wrote about in Bowling Alone, the idea of the, the different kinds of social structures we had, churches and, and civic organizations that people used to be more participative in, because those have sort of evaporated a little bit. We're at a stage where sometimes we feel very alone. And this is more true of men than women, although so many men, they're unconscious to it. They don't even realize how lonely they are. They can feel not happy, but they don't necessarily know it's loneliness that may be part of it. So what we need to do as a society is to look at how are we creating new social structures. Hoffman and MEA are new social structures, you know, programs that help create connection and then keep that connection. And part of the reason we have these community conversations is it's one of many things that Hoffman and MEA can do to keep that connection going within our communities. And no doubt, the more we feel connected with others, the more we have what I like to call emotional insurance. We have property and liability insurance for our home for a rainy day, but where's the emotional insurance for our own rainy day when things don't go well for us? And for a lot of us, we need that because that's what actually keeps us you know, alive when we go through the most difficult of times. Chip, where are you headed to the rest of the day? 
amazingly, I'm having a call in a few minutes with Raz and Liza to get prepared for our call next month. I'm going to go for a hike here in Santa Fe. And then I'm going to go hang out with one of my best friends, uh, Vanda, who lives here in Santa Fe. And we do, we do something that I love. Um, she's a coach. Uh, and she's someone who helped me through my dark time 15 years ago. But we do something called couching. And couching is where we lie on the couch with each other and we eat popcorn and we talk about the things from the third vault that we often don't have time to talk about just on a phone call or when we see each other. So I'm going to go couching with her. Fantastic. I am grateful for this conversation and I'm looking forward to this conversation between you and Raz and Liza. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Drew. Thank you, Chip. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.